You are listening to Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour, a podcast released on the first three Wednesdays of the month. Family crisis, relationship crisis, addiction crisis, no two crisis situations are the same. They vary by family, individual, and relationship. They can encompass complex family dynamics, emotional distress, anger issues, and entitlements, and often involve substance abuse. This podcast addresses these issues and others surrounding the addiction epidemic currently plaguing this country and the world. There is hope and help. Are you stuck, scared, or unsure of what to do next? If a situation with a loved one, spouse, or even a child has started to spiral, possibly becoming dangerous or threatening, it's time to seek help. My name is Scott H. Silverman. I help families navigate crisis situations. I'm the person you turn to in order to get you and your loved ones unstuck. Welcome back to the show. My name is Michael Glenn Moore. I'm Scott's co-host. And today, Scott, what do we have to talk about? Well, today we're going to talk about the different types of addiction and more importantly, the there are a couple of different types, but there are many different types of treatment. And I think that is going to be what we're going to focus on today because there are a lot of people who ask the question, you know, how do I know if I have an addiction? What do I do if I have an addiction? And but more importantly, how do I know if I do? What's the big differentiator? So what I'm going to do real quick is I'm going to read SAMHSA, which is the, you know, the federal guidelines uh, on what uh, addiction means. And so here it is. Addiction is a term that means compulsive physiological need for and use of habit-forming substance like heroin or nicotine characterized by tolerance and well-defined physiological symptoms upon withdrawal. It also has been used more broadly to refer to compulsive use of a substance known by the user to be, you know, addictive. And that, by the way, that definition can apply to gambling, food, sex, internet, shopping, all kinds of different things. And I think what's important is when people are on that journey to try to determine if their family member really has a problem, there's actually a variety of different ways to go online where somebody can actually Google, how do I know if I have an addiction? And I want to suggest that to the listeners that if you're not sure or you want to get a more clear picture, there are a myriad of like quick quizzes you can take about whether you do have an addiction or not, or maybe just an abuse problem. Because there are there is a fine line between abuse. There are people who like to party. And I don't think everybody who loves to do things compulsively, obsessively, you know, does have an addiction. And there is there is a gray area. And I'm not one to judge others, but I think it's important to get an understanding, especially if you're so close to somebody who has an active addiction problem, to be able to better understand how to approach. And I, I've learned a plethora of information, mostly from families who call from the crisis coaching perspective, and they want to know, how do I know if my son really has a problem? How do I know if my daughter is really addicted? How do I know they're not just experimenting? How do I know, you know, if there is a problem, then what do I do? And so that's what we're really going to focus on today is when you discover a behavior that seems to be, you know, inappropriate or not normal, what do you do about it? So before we go there, let me give my phone number out. So you have at the beginning of our segment, it's 619-993-2738, 619-993-2738. You call me anytime, yourcrisiscoach.com is the website, and I want to be your crisis coach and your family navigator. 
And anything either Michael and I can do to help you, your loved ones, your coworkers, colleagues, your neighbors, please don't hesitate to let us know. And if you are seeking information and you don't hear it from us and you'd like us to discuss it, let Michael know as well, because we want to bring to the podcast whatever information you want and need that would be helpful. So let's talk about what happens when you discover someone has an issue. First and foremost, I think it's real important is to try not to fix that person yourself. Do not be the one who becomes the lifeguard if you don't have the experience, the skill sets, or the patience or tolerance. Because most people tend to have most of the relationship gets deteriorated quickly or there's a lot of friction in the family and they've tried to say things like, stop doing that. I remember in my own experience as somebody who drank a lot, I'd hear people say, well, you know, if you didn't pick up a drink, Scott, you wouldn't have a drinking problem. Well, okay, but I did pick up a drink. And the reaction I had, because I have, you know, this pre-wired condition of addiction personally, and according to stats, you've heard us talk about it, about 15% of our country uh, does have a predisposed situation around addiction, just like some people are predisposed to diabetes, cancer, and other diseases. So I really encourage families to think about it. Meaning if this person has an illness, what can we do to help them? Rather than say, you know, this problem they have is a moral failing and they really just need to stop. Well, the average person who has this issue cannot just stop. That's where the professionals come in. So if you've identified somebody in your family who you believe may have an issue, go online, do some simple research, start to ask some questions, but talk to people who have some experience around it. And my guess would be if you know more than five people, somebody in that circle has had experience with somebody who has an active addiction or has been able to support their loved one who has an addiction and may be able to give you some suggestions and ideas. But again, don't be the lifeguard. Don't be the one who says, I'm going to fix this. And as parents, we always want to fix our children. As parents, we want to be the ones who, you know, take care of them, embrace them, and we want to be the lifeguard. And I remember years ago when I heard a story about how lifeguards, when they first approach a person in the water who's potentially drowning, they have to be very careful because the person who's drowning is going to potentially lash out and could, and could injure and also bring the other person down with them. So just like that kind of thinking, be careful as you approach the, your loved one because there are ways to do it and there are ways that are effective and there are ways that aren't effective. So let's talk about the different types of treatment. First off, when someone's been diagnosed or we believe somebody has an issue, the first thing that a clinical expert assesses is through a psycho, uh, psychological evaluation. They call it a psychosocial. They'll go through a full line of questions asking about the behavior, the patterns, the usage, the time of day, the volume, what they're doing. And they'll, through that process, which is a, you know, DSM-5, which is the federal government's guide to how to assess, and professionals do this. I don't even do this. I, I have an experience around it, but I always refer people once we've determined someone has an issue and wants help, I make the referral uh, to a clinical professional. We bring them into our treatment center and our clinical professional is the one who does the assessment. It's not really good for someone who's not, you know, professionally trained to try to make that assessment, even though they may have crashed their car, got some DUIs, been gambling, lost a lot of money, burned through some relationships, lost a job, whatever the outcome might be from some of their behavior. So one of the primary portals that someone goes into when they need help is they go through what's called detox. Detox is, can be medically supervised, and that's where 
the individual is in an environment where the professionals around them are actually potentially even administering some medication to make sure that when they go through their withdrawals, they're not getting ill or having side effects or any you know, heart issues or breathing issues or physiological problems that can come from stopping taking something that the body has become dependent on. So detox is usually the first part after the assessment. And then moving from there, they go into uh, potentially a residential treatment environment, which is anywhere from 15 to 28 day stays. And sometimes there are programs that offer extended stays depending upon the individual's level of need and of course their period of time that they've been involved with substances and mood altering medication. So that is a, a, a highly recommended and referred to portal as well, or foundation or part of the path for treatment and recovery. And then next from there, the step down is going into, they use a step down going from inpatient to an outpatient program. And there's different variety levels of outpatient. One of them is intensive outpatient, they call it. Now there's just outpatient. And, and there's also another one called partial hospitalization, which is a higher level of outpatient. I'm using these terms and we're throwing them out there pretty quickly, but you know, go Google them get some information around what the different levels of treatment are. And a lot of those terms have pretty much been put together. And a lot of how the terms are you know, utilized, if you will, is because insurance industry, what they cover, meaning there's a rate for detox on a daily basis. There's a rate for residential treatment. There's a rate for outpatient. There's a rate for a clinical reimbursement. There's a rate for intake and assessment and the psych exam as well. So that's part of those terms come from the industry if you will, first by the diagnosis and then by the industry and how the insurance company will pay for that level of treatment or level of care, if you will. And then part of what happens in the journey, if you will, and I like to call it a journey because that's what it is. You just, if you've been under the influence for, you know, one year, two years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years or more, you just can't stop on a Wednesday and by the following Monday feel like I'm ready to hit the streets and I'm going to attack the world, you know, in my new level of recovery and sobriety because it, it is it is complicated and the brain, the mind, the body, the soul have become addicted to whatever it is you've been putting in your body. So part of that process of the rehab, if you will, is going through the learning process of what it takes to learn. I like the term learning how to live life on life's terms. So through the outpatient program, an individual will go through, you know, classes each week, uh, whether it be behavioral training or digital, uh, if you will, behavioral training or dialectic training. There's, there's different modalities in the outpatient program. Sometimes it's done in a group therapy environment, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, and sometimes it's a hybrid of both. So those things are real important, and that depends where you go for the level of care that your body, mind, and soul needs. And again, Sometimes you hear from, I hear from clients, all, all I really need is detox or all I really need is, you know, a couple of one-on-one -on -one sessions. Well, I never like to see the person who's got the disease, you know, become the person who prescribes, you know, the treatment because they don't really know yet. And if they did know, they probably would be practicing it somehow or at some level, or maybe they've had some experience. And a lot of people who have been in and out of treatment actually know all the buzzwords. They know what to say, how to say it. And remember that the disease of addiction is a disease of denial. And the disease of denial really is somebody who may have a problem telling themselves they really don't have a problem. Meaning, example might be, well, if, if I wasn't depressed, I wouldn't drink. You know, if I didn't have a significant other who was in my business, I wouldn't drink. If I didn't have, you know, financial problems at work, um, I wouldn't drink. But those are generally just excuses. And that's why I really encourage families to try not to be the helpful lifeguard but to get this individual to a 
you know, clinically, professionally trained individual. So through the group therapy, individuals will discuss, talk to each other. These are usually facilitated by a, a clinical expert again whether it's a marriage family therapist or a licensed uh, social worker or a psychologist, in some cases a psychiatrist as well. And the counselors, what they do is help guide the group and bring out the things that need to be discussed. And in a group setting, what happens is you get a chance to hear from others who may have similar paths that you've had and similar path that you are on. So you're finding some sort of a connection, what's defined as a social model, meaning you're working together, kind of like when you're at the gym and you're working out with others, you know, and you're on one of those, you know, uh, arenas where you're moving from equipment to equipment and you're following each other and you're working together and you're giving each other feedback and you might even have a trainer there because if you don't know how to train and you need a trainer, that's what they're there to help facilitate. They're a coach basically or an advocate or someone who's got a lot of experience and can kind of show you and make this appropriate suggestions. And when you hit a roadblock, part of what happens in the group setting is the facilitator will start to ask some questions, help guide you, make suggestions, and then your other members of your group will start to give you feedback. Now, they're not necessarily part of the clinical team, but they are part of the recovery group, and they are part of the recovery path and the recovery journey. Again, I liken it to exercise because if you generally are affected with it, you're, you're, you're working out with a buddy. And that's the buddy system, if you want to put it on a simple plane. And then while you're in the treatment modality and the recovery path from a structured perspective, there's going to be suggestions that more than likely you're going to get about self-help groups where you kind of expand on that social model. And I just want to take a second and explain that if you, as an individual, have been under the influence or you know someone who has been or they've been self-medicating or they've been drinking a lot or gambling a lot, and you think about the volume of hours they spend each day under the influence, okay? And I'll use myself as an example. I work 12, 14 hours a day, but when I was under the influence, I was usually under the influence an average of eight hours or more per day. So that day is pretty full up and the only hours left are sleeping hours, assuming you're sleeping. So what happens is all of a sudden now, when you pull the anesthesia, I like to call it out of your life, or, your, or it gets pulled out of your life for a variety of different reasons, because you don't want to go to jail, you don't want to be institutionalized, and of course, you certainly don't want to die. All of a sudden, now you have all those hours in your week where you have to start thinking about what is it I'm going to do to fill that time? How am I going to replace those hours? And more than likely, the average person does not have those skill sets. So that's where the structure of treatment really is helpful to get the tools part and participation in the recovery modalities and the path itself and the recovery groups, the self-help groups, anonymous groups, structured clinical support groups, give you a chance to kind of check in, you know, every other day, you know, a couple of days a week until you start to build those tools and apply them to everyday life. Because if you're under the influence of eight hours a day, and that's an extreme case, maybe some people are going, well, I'm more like 15 hours a day. Well, eight hours a day is 56 hours a week. That's like a full-time job and a half. If you don't know how to structure your time, if you don't know you know how to fill that time, that's, again, where the self-help comes in, where being in a group recovery environment and in a fellowship, if that's where you're comfortable, whether it's faith-based or anonymous groups, and I don't want to give labels to anything. I just want to make suggestions on how you think it through, and then you start to listen carefully about from others, specifically the professionals, 
and the support groups on what you should do next. And they'll guide you. In many cases, you'll be talking to people who have been there and who have done that and they've experimented with what doesn't work and they become skilled, hopefully, at what does. So, and think about this. When we talk about other diseases, we'll use uh, diabetes as an example. Once you get diagnosed, once you get access to treatment, your treatment will go on for the rest of your life. So I think it's important for people to know you just don't stop. There's going to be a rebuilding process. There's going to be an emotional re, you know, inventing yourself in many ways. And there's the science that actually says that once you start taking in mood-altering substances, you stop growing emotionally. So if you're 17 years old and you start doing drugs, technically you've got the maturation rate of a 17-year-old, even if you're 28, 35, or 40, because your body just doesn't organically move forward when you're in a constant mode of anesthetizing yourself. So staying in treatment is real important and it's very critical as well. And, you know, I don't think there's a, a school of thought other than, you know, science shows, and you, know, you usually hear me say that a lot. And the reason is there are studies out there, longitudinal studies that show that people that stay engaged in recovery, people who stay involved with groups, people who stay connected to a clinician, a facilitator, an expert, um, will generally they'll reduce the recidivism rate. Now, here's an interesting, startling statistic that will scare most people. The average person who goes through a 28-day inpatient program and does nothing else, okay, that's in a, you know, a, a non-anxious environment. There's no decision anxiety. You know, you're living there 24 hours a day. You've got clinicians on staff. Your vital signs are being checked. You don't have to worry about making decisions because the staff's doing it for you. But when you're done with that, if that's all you do, you have a 95% chance of relapsing if you don't do any continuum of care after a 28-day stay. So I personally really encourage people you know, talk with your experts, develop a recovery plan, and know that you're going to have to work on it a little bit every day for the rest of your life, but you only have to do it one day at a time. So those are the basics, um, but I'm going to stop for a second and see, Michael, do you have any other questions with what we've covered so far? Well, I'd like to go back some and maybe go into a little bit more depth about each of the topics. For instance, I'm, I'm saying for the purpose of this podcast, we're mainly dealing with alcohol and drug addiction. Now, in detoxification, does that always mean going cold turkey, or is there, a, or are there usually plans for you to wean yourself off of the medication or the alcohol? Uh, and is that done in a inpatient, or best done in an inpatient format? Well, there, there's a. That's a good question, and I mentioned earlier. Sometimes there's medication uh, assisted treatment where you're actually, you know given medication while you're going through withdrawals. And the reason for that is individuals who, and we'll use alcohol, for example, if you're drinking alcohol, whether it's wine or hard liquor every day, when you stop, your body's going to go through some major shock. And when it does, the idea is in a detox environment is to be around professionals that are actually, you know, monitoring your vital signs and can give you uh, the appropriate level of support that you might need. Some of it's just sleeping, some may be diet change. In many cases, you might need to uh, take some medication. For example, when I was detoxing off of alcohol and marijuana and cocaine, I was given Valium. And the reason I was given Valium is so my body 
could go through the detox, medical detox process and not go into shock. And there are ways to do detoxes in an outpatient environment. And a lot of it just depends on what the medical experts have assessed and what the clinical experts have suggested based on what you've disclosed in your intake and assessment process. But all of this is done with experts setting up a recovery plan. It's not something you do yourself. And I've seen people try it all the time and call me, oh, I've, I've gone with, you know, two or three days without drinking. Well, most of us can do that. It's called white knuckling it, if you will, cold turkey. The problem with that is unsupervised, you are in the risk potentially of, of some sort of a medical emergency. And if you live alone or you don't want to make the phone call or you're unconscious or you're sleeping, you know, you're going to have some real complications if you don't end up potentially having a you know, heart attack or a brain hemorrhage or some other severe medical condition from stopping taking that medication. My point is that the body's kind of adjusted to having that in there. And when you remove it, there's some things that can happen to your, your system that are not anticipated or planned. So some people do need a higher level of care. And a lot of it has to do with, are they on prescription medication given to them by a doctor? Have they been mixing alcohol with prescription medication? So again, this is where you really want to talk to medical experts and therapists to find out the best level of care that you can get started with. Meaning it's hard to go online and decide what you need to do based on what you've read. So detox is a critical mode, especially for someone who's been under the influence of something mood altering for a long period of time. And that has to do with just most things, but alcohol and drugs themselves. Again, when you think about, when you think about what it does to your body to help you kind of escape, imagine what your body's going to go through when that escape mechanism is no longer in your body. So if you, if you've ever drank coffee and you quit coffee for a while, you remember the headaches, the sleep patterns, the pain you went through, the, the inability to focus or concentrate, put that on, you know, steroids, not, not literally, but figuratively. And that's what happens with alcohol. You know, your brain is screaming for it. Your body is going through withdrawals and your mind and your body wants to replace it with something. And sometimes people do need a medication assisted or they call it harm reduction way to supplement that transition. So you're, you know, you're not going to hurt yourself. So, in order to be successful in a self-help group, you should have already gone through your detox. And then is, is that after finishing your detox, is that when you start to uh, maybe go look for uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous? Uh, you know, do you, should you or should that be in conjunction with your detox? Well, I, I always like to suggest to people that, you know, if you haven't had any medical support in the most recent past or present, that you really need to see a doctor before you go to attempt this. There are, there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that have gone into the rooms. You know, I went into the anonymous rooms and I've heard the stories of people just say, well, I'm not going to take Valium. You know, I'm not going to take, you know, uh, Subutex. I'm not going to take, you know, methadone. I'm not going to have Vivitrol. I'm not going to take other medication because I want to be abstinent. And they go into the rooms and they go to meetings. And the problem with just doing that is if you went to a meeting every day, Michael, you'd be in a meeting for an hour. And again, when I, as I said earlier, you know, if you're under the influence, and by the way, if you're under the influence every day for six, seven, eight hours, actively consuming or self-medicating, you're also going to sleep somewhat impaired which means you're more than likely waking up impaired. So when you think about a 24-hour day, even though you're only drinking for six, seven, eight hours, or even four hours, or some people, well, I only drink two hours, but I drink, you know, a quarter of, of vodka. 
Well, your body has all of that poison in its system. So that's why sometimes just going to a meeting isn't enough, especially if you're at a point where you've, you've been introducing the body to this kind of chemical for so long, it's always recommended that you see a doctor at a minimum and let some medical professional know what you're about to do and get some advice before you do it. But there are people that do it. There are people that are very successful. But, you know, the anonymous 12-step programs have a 95% documented failure rate, just like any other treatment center, if you will. And no matter where the treatment center is in the world, that's the data, if that's all you do. So we know the science says, the studies show, I mean, I personally, you know, have been in long-term recovery for over 35 years. So I've met tens of thousands of people who, you know, they come in the program and they're, they're doing their meeting and maybe two meetings a day. And you know what? It may work for them, but I would just be very careful about it because what's happened in the last 15 years or so, people who are in a poly drug situation, meaning they're drinking and they've got prescribed benzos to go to sleep at night, Ambien, you know, to relax. And they're on uh, Adderall because they were a kid that had ADHD. So if you're prescribed Adderall and you're taking benzos at night and you're drinking and all of a sudden you stop, there are some things that can happen to the body, mind, and soul that no one's going to be able to control. So an hour meeting per day is just not enough for somebody who may be so dependent on their medication that they're going to go through some major withdrawal issues and some potential medical exposure that they're not going to be able to control. I mean, let's use an example, uh, Whitney Houston, when she was, you know, when she expired and they went through her autopsy, she was on some prescription medication and she was mixing it with street drugs. And the experts have said, you know, we don't have enough data yet because so many people for so long, you know, used to do heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, you know, and they were living long lives. But what's happening is in the last 15 years, people, you know, we're a prescription-oriented society. I think it's something like 25% of our young children in our country right now are on some sort of medication to calm them down, deal with anxiety, handle depression, or they have learning disabilities. And that's kind of how we've, you know, medically treated them this through some form of medication to, you know, bring up their awareness, give them more uh, attentive uh, opportunities to draw more information in and it's worked against them. So my point is if you're on multiple medications, you shouldn't just try this on your own, you know, in an hour a day just may not be enough. And there's nothing wrong with just checking in with a medical professional just to get an opinion of somebody that you know and you trust. What I wanted to ask you next is, of course, staying in treatment long enough is critical, but uh, treatment plans often change during the treatment. What are some kind of what, what kind of things happen during treatment that you have to have to kind of be aware of that may cause your treatment plan to change? Well, when you first, when you first go into treatment, you know, and all of a sudden you're being introduced to a zero consumption, meaning you're no longer bringing anything mood altering in your system. Everything's going to change. You know, the way you think your, your mind's all of a sudden no longer, you know, in this state of, uh, I don't want to say confusion, but a infusion of the medication that you've been taking. So now all of a sudden your mind is in a whole different place and your routine is shifted. And generally speaking, the first couple of weeks, most people, when they come off of drugs or alcohol, you know, they're kind of in la la land. They're kind of like, you know, turned into rubber. They're uh, and not, not from the standpoint of being flexible, but just, you know, there isn't a whole lot of 
institutional thinking that goes on the first couple of weeks once you get off of your medication because your, your brain is withdrawing, your body is withdrawing, and that's painful. It's not easy at any level. So generally what happens is the first couple of weeks of any treatment, whether it's outpatient or going to a self-help group or going to a 12-step program, your body is really going through some tough times. And, you know, there, there's a lot of studies done around it. And again, go online and look, look at detox and look about, you know, withdrawals and what that talks about because it can be very, very dangerous if you do it on your own. So generally speaking, the first couple of weeks are just kind of, you know, getting some sleep, putting some food in the body and getting some rest, catching up. And then, you know, the, the clinical environment starts to introduce information about, you know, talking about the history of what you're doing. And then, you know, maybe in going into week three and four, you're talking about what the plan looks like when you're not on, on substances, you're not drinking anymore, what do, you, what do you do with your free time? How do you learn how to live life on life's terms? What does that look like? What's it going to be like after a 12-hour day when you can't or have made a decision not to have wine or drink vodka? What are you going to replace that with? Will it be meditation? Will it be some quiet time? Will it be journaling? Will it be going to meetings? You know, will it be going to some faith-based arena and, and, and praying, if you will? What, what do you do with that time? And if you haven't done it before, that's where the treatment side of it really gives you the basic tools. But in true recovery, in my opinion, the recovery path is taking those tools and implementing them into your daily life and then practicing what works best. And what works best sometimes, as you say, it's the experimental side and it shifts a little bit. Some people need to go to two meetings every day. Some people need to go to three meetings every day. Some people need to see a psychiatrist twice a week. Some people just do fine in an outpatient environment 10 hours a week and they go eight weeks. Some people need to stay there for maybe 20 weeks. So it really depends on the individual. And then also, when you think about it, when you go home after going through an initial change like that, What's your home environment like? Did you do a lot of drinking at home? Do you have a significant other who drank? Are you going to be tempted by what happens there? What about your social life, the free time you had? Were you going to bars? Working with somebody right now who drank all the time, but drank all the time at business meetings, and their business is wrapped around their social time after hours. So they're making some difficult decisions about how do they do business you know, with people that are drinking when they don't want to be with people that are drinking. So they've, they've kind of carved out a little bit of a pilot group that doesn't drink and they're doing more meetings during the day so they don't have to worry about it at dinner because some people aren't going to, you know, they're not going to raise their hand and go, hey, by the way, I quit drinking and I can't be with you people because that's a major lifestyle change. But you have to make it at some point because the temptation is going to be too great. It's kind of like, you know, you quit smoking and then all you do is hang out with smokers. The temptation is going to be way too great. So the idea is this is, again, where group and self, you know, self-help groups and social models really become supportive because you're going to have that angst. That's going to happen for everybody. You just don't decide on a Tuesday night, in my opinion, I'm going to stop doing this. And then you wake up Wednesday morning and everything is fine and you're doing it all on your own. I rarely, rarely have seen a person be successful with that. It's really hard to do. And why would you want to do it alone? I mean, when you think about it, most people don't drink alone. They don't party alone. Why would you try to want to get sober by yourself? Because the stigma, I mean, it's embarrassing. It's shameful, you know, when you have to admit that you had a problem. And then a lot of your friends are looking at you and you're not drinking now. And they're thinking, well, I drank the way you drank. If you have a problem, I have a problem. There's a saying in, in you know, one of the programs that, you know, when you get sober, you're supposed to change your playmate, play places and play things simply because 
that's where you spent your waking hours under the influences with others. And now you've got to find ways to learn how to live life on life's terms. It can be very exciting. It's sad at first because you do have to, you know, you think about it. Alcohol was my best friend. Everywhere I went, I drank. And, I, and then all of a sudden, I had to give up my best friend. That was sad. You know, I had to actually go through a grieving process and had to let go of that dependency. And psychologically, you know, I was crippled for quite some time. And again, the science says it can take anywhere from one to five years before the body really makes, you know, the significant emotional change and the maturity to really understand the kind of things that have gone on. I mean, it's not miserable every day for five years, but it takes time to move away from that. And, and to me, fear is what helped keep me sober. I just didn't want to lose anything. And, you know, I was one of those people that tried to take my own life to stop the pain in my head and heart. And I was willing to do what everyone suggested I did. And I think that's part of what contributed to my opportunity to have continuous sobriety. So I, I was teachable, I was willing, and I continued to do the things that I was, early on was suggested to do. And that's what I encourage others to do as well. Do what's best for you. And also know, and I want to be sure I say this, is one size does not fit all, which means what I did for my recovery may not work for you. What you do for your recovery may be something you've heard from your friends and it may not work for you. That's why it takes time to find your, you know, your momentum, your niche, your, you know, your special zone that works for you. But you can't do that on your own. You've got to be around others. If nothing else, to learn what they've done or to hear what they've done, see what they've done and see how well it works for you. That's the experimental process. That's how I call the term living life on life's terms, but you can't do that in your own head. I like that saying that, you know, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I never go there alone. Treatment should be, when you're in treatment, you should take into account whether or not there are other underlying issues such as mental illnesses. So say for instance, I'm bipolar and I'm addicted to opioids. How would that type of situation affect my treatment? Well, it, the, the process of treatment, and, and I don't think I've ever met anybody who just has an alcohol problem, or I've never met anybody who just has a methamphetamine problem or a cocaine problem. If your primary diagnosis is addiction to mood-altering substances, once you remove the anesthesia, I like to call the substances, you're now, for example, with me, I'm left with Scott. Well, there was a reason why I was drinking. There was a reason why I was intoxicating myself on a daily basis. And what I found, I actually went to an expert and said, I need help because I'm depressed. And I was depressed. And I said, if I could drink more, I wouldn't be depressed. But the problem was the drinking was affecting everything in my life, my job, my relationship, you know, my social life, my, my family's life, and my life with my wife. And so the experts told me, well, if you keep yourself under anesthesia, you're not going to have a life. You're going to end up, you know, in a jail or an institution or worse. So what happens is once you remove the mood-altering substances, to me, that's where the real work starts. That's a good question, Michael. That's where you start to work on, you know, some of the behavioral health issues, you know, did you have some sort of trauma from your past? Were you impacted by some catastrophic event 
you know, that may or may not what triggered your substance abuse. But if you think about the fact that it is a disease and you were born with it, but it got activated through certain behaviors and over time you found yourself not having to deal with it. And the way you dealt with it was anesthetizing yourself. Once you remove the anesthesia, you have to start working on some of the real tough stuff, the depression, the anxiety, you know, are you bipolar? Are you really ADHD? Do you have a sleep uh, problem? Do you have a relationship problem? Do you have a life skills problem? Are you, you know, have you been impacted by something catastrophic in your life? You know, a divorce in a family, a, lo a loss of a sibling, you know, just suffering from PTSD, for example, and that without being diagnosed, you'll never get treated for it. And those kind of things all contribute to, in my opinion, to what we see and why we see such a stigma around it because most people who have the problem don't think they do. And those who see those who do have the problem want them to get fixed, but don't know how. And in many families, the disease is that. We talked about this last week. It's a family disease. Everyone's impacted by the addict or the alcoholic. And some people think that the you know, codependent, the family member, the significant other, sometimes is sicker than the addict themselves or the alcoholic simply because they've hung around and tried to fix it, whether it be ignoring it or trying to fix it. So treating trauma or untreated trauma has to be dealt with, you know, and you, but you can't really do good, solid mental health support work while you're under the influence of something mood altering because that blocks the ability for you know the experts to kind of get in there and help and for you to be able to focus and process because again you can't do it while you're under the influence i think what our main takeaway here is that one treatment does not fit all each each treatment has to be pretty much geared towards the individual and what their needs are and not from what the group's needs are so, Scott, let's, let's go ahead and end it there. Uh, do you have a positive affirmation for us today? You know, I'm going to repeat the old one. Do what you've always done. You get what you've always gotten, which means seek help, ask questions, ask for help, and understand there is hope and help.